Good to be with you this morning. Welcome. Friends, I want to invite you to open up to page 980. If you're using the Pew Bibles, page 980, we're going to be starting a series in the letter of Philippians. It's page 980 and we'll be in Philippians 1. What an amazing way to start worship together. Such joy in singing with the people of God and the house of God as we are empowered by the Spirit of God and now come to sit under the Word of God as it works in our hearts and conforms us to God's image and even in this room births new life from spiritual death. That is our expectation when we come on Sundays to worship the living God in this place. Let us pray that God will work through His Word as we trust He will. Lord God, You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have existed from all time. You're the creator of all things, including the new hearts that you give us to be able to respond to you in faith, in joy, in thanksgiving, and self-sacrificial service. And so we pray today that as we journey with Paul through this ancient letter, that it wouldn't be an artifact of antiquity, but that it would be the very word of God, which it is, inspired, infallible, profitable for all teaching, reproof, and correction and righteousness, that it would nourish the very depths of our hearts and souls as we entrust ourselves to you through it. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, Philippians is a short epistle, only four chapters long, but one of the interesting things that I noticed about our worship this morning, one of the interesting things about Philippians is that joy occurs more in Philippians than in any other letter in the entire New Testament. The only books in the New Testament that have more instances of joy are the Gospels of Luke and John, which have about 20 instances of joy each. But when you consider that the Gospels of Luke and John are like four times longer than the epistle to the Philippians, it's quite amazing that Paul is so joyous in this epistle. And it's even more amazing when you realize as you read the epistle that he's writing to us from captivity in Rome. This is one of the epistles that's known as a prison epistle, a prison letter. So Paul is the most joyous out of all the letters that he's written, and yet he's written this letter from confinement, uh, from chains. What's going on with that? Where does this joy come from in Paul that he can proclaim it with such power while in lockup? Well, happily, Paul explains that to us, and I think the essence of what he's going to say today and the way we'll look at this passage is to say the transformative grace that God has worked in us when he saved us, which we've been talking about for weeks, that the power of the church, the meaning of the church is so that people who are spiritually dead would come and be born again to new life and have salvation in Jesus Christ alone. That transformative grace is never separate from the tangible graces that God works through us. Another way to put it is this. God works in us, yes, but as God works in us, it is never separate from the work that God intends to do through us. And this is what Paul is really on about in this epistle. Look at verse 5. We're going to work our way down. We'll get to verse 7, and then we'll stop and take a look at how it applies to us. Verse 5, hear the word of God. 
Because of your partnership in the gospel, Paul says, that's why I make every prayer of mine. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What does he mean? Well, the word here is koinonia, which is used in other texts like 1 Corinthians 10 to talk about Holy Communion, that we have koinonia, that we have communion with each other and God when we take the communion elements together as a church. The same word koinonia is used in Acts 2.42, but there it's translated fellowship. Fellowship, communion, but here that word is translated by the ESV as partners in the gospel. So what's going on? Have the translators made a mistake here in the ESV? Should it have been one of those other ones? No, 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 that's not what's going on. What helps us to understand this is to realize the whole scope of Paul's epistles. You see, the Philippian church is known to Paul as being not only a saved church, but a self-sacrificing church. And they do this in tangible ways, not just in abstract ideas. See, the Philippian church was at the top of Greece, what is today northern Greece. It was made up of maybe a third Roman citizens who had some power. But most of the congregation would have been agrarian subsistence farmers, not wealthy people by any means. They're living week to week, sometimes day to day based on the crops in their field. And yet we read in the epistle of 2 Corinthians, we read in the Thessalonian epistle, and we read here in Philippians that three times this little ragtag church in some small city in Rome, probably meeting in somebody's house, sends gifts to Paul that help his ministry go forward in Rome. And you would have read in 12 through 14, if you were listening, you would have heard, yeah, Paul's in prison, but somehow, even though he's in prison, the gospel is not bound and chained. The gospel breaks out from the confinement and acts as a catalyst going forward to all of Rome, making people even more bold to speak the gospel. And Paul is saying this in verse 5. Hear this now. It's because of your partnership in the gospel. What he doesn't mean is just, hey, we're all individuals, we all believe the same thing, and we all kind of gather in the same place with some degree of frequency. That's not what he means. It's true, but it's not what he means. What he means is that transforming grace that God worked in you when you first believed in him gives birth to tangible graces that change the world to conform it to the glory of God. Transformative grace and tangible grace. And he continues in this fashion to teach us. Look at verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this. I'm confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful verse, and it means two things. It means that the work that God started in your heart, you weren't seeking God, you weren't going after God, you were in the dark and spiritually dead, and God came to you, ripped you out of the darkness, and gave you new life. And He does it all the time for His people when the Word is preached and the Spirit works. The first thing it means is that God will carry that salvation from its beginning, which He is responsible for, all the way to its completion, which he is responsible for. 
It doesn't mean we live frivolous, unethical lives. It just means that at the root of it, the perseverance of the saints depends on God. Our ability to hang on till the end depends on God. But the second thing it means is not only that God has transformed us by His gospel and that He will see us through, it means this, that the good work that the Philippians had done in their tangible acts of giving and self-sacrificial love make Paul confident that what's going on in their hearts is not just a human thing. It's an otherworldly thing. It's a supernatural thing. It builds Paul up and gives him confidence that they really are who they say they are. And it's important as Christians that we have this because the world looks at us and will often say, well, I like your Jesus, but your Christians, I don't want them. Because they perceive us to be hypocrites and these sort of things. And sometimes they have a point, right? This is central to the gospel that the work that God does in us will be integrally connected to the work that God does through us, verse seven. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for we are all partakers, that word koinonia again, we're all participants, partakers in the gospel, both in imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here again, it's a twofold thing. We are all brought together and saved, yes, But that word grace, you see that word grace there? In the original, it actually reads the grace, which can also be translated as the gift. What gift? The Philippians' tangible acts of grace to Paul that made the proclamation and propagation of the gospel possible, that made it go out into Rome, into the midst of a pagan city, and start transforming people's hearts. Our walk matches our witness. Our sacrificial living is rooted in our salvation, and God uses it all, and that makes Paul confident that God will complete the work that he has surely begun in their hearts. Well, what does this mean for us, and, and how could this apply to us? And it comes at an interesting time to think about this, because as we come to next week, we are moving towards Commitment Sunday. And we didn't plan it this way, this is just when we decided to start this sermon, which has an aspect of sacrificial giving. But next week is Commitment Sunday, when many of us are discerning now, how are we going to shepherd and steward our gifts, our financial gifts and other gifts, this year as we go on mission together for Jesus in the D.C. area in 2023 as the Falls Church. And as soon as I hear those words come out of my mouth, I think, of what I thought about Christians who talked about any sort of giving before I was a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking that right now. Maybe you are a Christian and you're thinking that right now. My experience with giving before I was a Christian was basically rooted in what I saw on Christian TV. That's not good. If, I'm sure there's some good stuff on Christian TV, but it wasn't the stuff that I was watching on Christian TV. For just $49.95, Just send in your love offering, and your healing will come true. All your hopes and dreams will be fulfilled, and we'll send you a prayer hanky as well. (laughs) Soaked in the powerful, mystical sorcerer oil of this person. And I was like, I can't think of a more strange thing to do 
than to want to send $49.95 to get what is essentially a used handkerchief from a guy who is dressed in what appears to be an outfit that used to belong to Elvis. There's just so many better investments I could make than to buy him a 15th jet. Well, when I became a Christian, I started to say, well, okay, actually there is a legitimacy to this. It's giving to the local church for the mission of God. But of course, you know, I was young and I didn't really know what it meant to give. And I said to the pastor of the church, it was this little tiny kind of church plant in New England. I said, Matt, I want to join the church. I want to become a member. I'm all in. And he said, oh, are you? He said, do you give to the church? Do you think about how you use your finances? So then my antennas go up. I'm like, is this going to be some of this prayer handkerchief stuff from TV? Is this going to be, you know, the, the, the stuff that I've been seeing? No, no. He said, no, this is how the, the Holy Church goes forth and carries on its ministry. He says, when you talked to me about the way you spend your money, did you know you spend more money per week on coffee than you do on giving to Jesus? And I was kind of a punk then. I've grown up a lot since. And I, I wasn't ready to receive that kind of a teaching. I, I said to him, Matt, don't you know that the Bible said God loves a cheerful giver, not a coffeeless giver? <laughs> and he didn't like that too much, and he told me so. But then he started to show me in Holy Scripture how it says, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And how Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. And how, yes, God said God loves a cheerful giver, but he also said whoever sows whoever." so sparingly will also reap sparingly and my heart started to change my heart started to change now i think that i'm still in a learning process here i think we all are so i don't stand up here saying i've got this figured out but the desire starts to change when you see the faithfulness of god in a place working faithfully to change people's hearts in a world that wants nothing to do with that we're in northern virginia we have this great church when I was worshiping with us when we first came here, I had this, this sense of worshiping with the whole communion of the saints. Do you ever get that sense when you're worshiping? That it's not just us in this room, that we're united to God's church through the ages. And then I started to think that this is a great church and we need hundreds of other churches in this area. And we need mission and we need work. And then I started to realize again why Paul was so encouraged by the Philippians because of these very reasons. The transformative grace of God worked in tangible ways that made the confinement of Paul into a catalyst for gospel work. It didn't impede the work of the gospel, it progressed the work of the gospel because nothing can contain a resurrection God. When you try to contain him, well, he bursts out just like a risen savior from an empty tomb. That is the God we worship, the transforming grace and the tangible grace of that God. Well, let's continue because it's not just tangible grace, it's this idea that Jesus dwells in us in a transformative way. Hear what the gospel says, verse 8. Paul says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Flag that in your mind. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, being filled with the fruit of righteousness 
that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. This is kind of the basis, the roots of the person who would then become a tangible, self-sacrificing saint of God. The thing that really strikes me here is that when Paul prays for the saints there, he's not saying, I really feel it in here, and now I'm praying for you because I have perfect emotion. That's not what he says. Do you come to church every Sunday and feel perfectly attuned to deal with whatever 900 people are here? You just, are you always on? Are you always an extrovert? Maybe, but most people aren't. Some weeks are terrible, and some weeks are a struggle. Paul doesn't say, I work on the basis of my own perfect emotion, which is fleeting, and in any case, unable to be controlled. No, Paul says, look at, I go forward based on Jesus Christ's affections working in me. It's almost as if to say, when we don't have the emotional space to trust where we're at, we grab on to the stable, firm, unchanging affections of Jesus Christ. That's the place that Paul works from. When we're linked up to God in faith, we change to bear His image to start to operate according to his affections, to be drawn to become like him. In verses 10 and 11, it starts to talk about righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. But this is a pattern really all through Philippians. You're gonna see it across the weeks as we go through this epistle. Here, Paul says, I operate by the affections of Jesus Christ. In chapter two, Paul is gonna say, I don't operate by my own intellect, I operate by the mind of Jesus Christ. If it were up to me, I'd give up as soon as I don't get it. As soon as I can't figure out God's sovereignty, I'd abandon it. Paul doesn't operate like that. He operates by Jesus Christ's mind and Jesus Christ's affections. That is the rootedness that gives him the stability to break out and burst out even when he's contained in a prison in Rome. Christ's affections. Christ's mind. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, Paul starts talking about the fact that we stand righteous before God based on Christ's righteousness, not our own moral perfection, based only on the perfection of Jesus Christ. And he continues and he says Christ's righteousness and Christ's suffering and Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. These are the bases of which we carry on in the Christian faith. Nothing in us, everything in Him, which transforms us to become like Him. And as we do that, we learn how to love in ways that look like the God who is love. Now, Paul's imprisonment is paradoxical. It's a peculiar yet providential investment of the grace of God in the Philippians. It's catalytic, it's not contained. And in any case, when the world and the devil tried to seal up life in a tomb, it didn't work out. We didn't have permanent confinement, we had Easter. Because the Christmas faith is also the resurrection faith. Jesus was born, Jesus lived, Jesus died, but he was raised. And that is the basis of our faith. You know, the interesting thing about this is, This principle that tangible acts of grace work out God's transformational grace in our lives is that the times that I see it most profoundly are the times that you would expect to never see it at all. 
you wouldn't expect to see it there. And I'll give you an example. I've been in ministry for 20 years, I guess. Um, the last 10 years as an Anglican, and then 10 years before that as a Baptist, like most of you. And <laughs> welcome, you're in good company. You've come to the right place. And I'll tell you what, I've seen devastation because you're around it all the time. And the time when you see this most powerful is when you're in a hospital. A hospital is not a place you go looking for strength. It's a place you go expecting weakness and defeat and pending death. A hospital is a scary place, a place that reminds us that we're not in control, even if we were under the delusion that we were in control our whole lives. It reminds us the finality of life and the futility of life if there's nothing beyond this mortal life. And yet, the most profound times that I've seen the tangible grace of God at work have been at the bedside of the sick in the hospitals. Sometimes people who can not get out of those beds. And you'd say, clearly the work is done for them. There's no more that can be done now that they're contained and unable to carry on in the mission of God. It must be deferred, it must be delayed. Nothing else can be done in their situation. And we feel like that in other aspects of life as well. I'll carry on with the mission of God once I get that career back online. I'll continue and be fruitful and able to make some difference again once this thing is in order or that thing is in order. I gotta get to that season, I gotta sort things out and then I'll get back to the work of the mission. And none of these is as futile as when you're literally trapped in a hospital. One instance in a hospital I recall quite powerfully. I was at the bedside of a dear saint who everyone knew from her sacrificial service in the church for decades. They knew who as a, her as a prayer warrior. They knew her as a person who gave to the church, a person who was hospitable and welcoming and warm, who you saw the face of Christ in just being around. You know those kind of people. And I was at her bedside and, and she could barely indicate that I was there and she could barely speak, but she was somewhat alert. And so I didn't know what to do. And as Anglicans, we're lucky because we have this thing called the Book of Common Prayer, which is really just scripture arranged for worship. And so I felt scared, I felt intimidated. I wanted to be a help rather than a hindrance or an annoyance. So I, I prayed the Eke Deus, which is really, it's Isaiah 12. It's a prayer I pray when I'm afraid all the time. And I said, I don't know what to pray. I'm just gonna pray it. It sounds like this. So I closed my eyes and her eyes were closed. And I said, surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. For the Lord is my stronghold and my sure defense and he will be my savior. And I wasn't as animated, but um, I was spiritually animated. And then something in my soul, though, said, John, open your eyes. You're closing your eyes not out of reverence, but out of fear. Fear of facing the reality of what is in this room. It's a scary thing. So I opened my eyes, afraid, as a minister of the gospel. And when I did, I was stunned with what I saw. As I continued on, I saw this woman who was clinging to life, but having lived a legacy of a lifetime of faithful, tangible grace, 
mouthing with the only energy she had the prayer she had memorized and prayed probably hundreds and hundreds of times. An anchor for her soul in her moment of deepest trial and need. I continued, and she continued, not audibly, but moving her lips. Therefore, you shall draw water with rejoicing from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you shall say, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. See that they remember that his name is exalted. Make his deeds known among the nations. See that they remember his name is exalted. Sing the praises of the Lord, for he has done great things, and this is known in all the world. Cry aloud, inhabitants of Zion, ring out your joy, for the great one in the midst of you is the Holy One of Israel. Do you know this woman did that for the next 30 minutes with every prayer I prayed? Unbelievable. I came in there to minister to her, and anyone looking at the circumstances would say, she's unable to minister to you, and they would be wrong. They couldn't be more wrong because you can't contain the resurrection life of God. It breaks out and accomplishes the purposes of God, especially when it is rooted in the anchors and patterns of a lifetime of tangible grace, as it was with this saint. What I felt was not hopeless pity for her. What I, what I felt was hopeful admiration. Isn't that surprising? hopeful admiration that this is what it means to finish well this is what it means this is what it means and i don't think there's any better way on a all saint sunday to express what i felt in that room than to pray really the, the prayer of the creed and i'm just going to pray it over us as we um, conclude and then we'll take communion together and we'll continue with the service this is what we pray and this is what we rest in. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, as we continue with our service, help us to get a sense that the saints that we miss and the saints that we can't see, not only from across different time, but in different cultures and different continents, that we are one in Jesus Christ, that we share the mind of Christ when we don't know what to think, that we share the affection of Christ, that we share the righteousness of Christ by which we conquer death and stand victorious in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that is our inheritance. And with all the saints, whether they're in a hospital bed or whether they're at the peak of their life, we say, even in our chains, the word of God is not bound. The gospel is true. You are amazing. And we thank you, Jesus, that you work not only in us, but through us to accomplish your purposes. And we say with great expectation to bring us your joy. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.